Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Last week, we finished looking at chapter 12 and 13 of Revelation. In chapter 12, we saw him revealed as the enormous dragon whose constant objective was to destroy both God's chosen people and God's Son. In chapter 13, the other members of Satan's unholy trinity of the end times were revealed as John gave detailed descriptions of two beasts who work alongside Satan before the return of Jesus. Thankfully, chapters 12 and 13 aren't the end of the story because immediately after the scene of the beast marking his followers, John's gaze is once more drawn toward Christ, the victorious king. And we begin in chapter 14 with his declaration. Then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. What a stark contrast to what we had just witnessed in the worldly kingdom of the Antichrist. Here, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is said to be with those who've cast themselves on his mercy. In his presence, they are forever safe. John sees them standing together on Mount Zion, and I think it's really helpful to understand that though Mount Zion is the physical, geographical hill upon which the temple in Jerusalem is built, according to Scripture, there is a heavenly Mount Zion as well. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews, Hebrews 12.22, that it is another name for the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And, you know, opinion is divided on just which Mount Zion is in view here. Are they standing on earth or are they standing in heaven? John really doesn't make it clear, but based on all that's said in Revelation about the 144,000, many scholars believe that they are still alive on earth witnessing for Christ and that the vision is really to assure us that Jesus is with them, helping them to do what he's called them to do. We first saw these 144,000 Jewish believers back in Revelation 7, and we learned that they were made up of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, which may not be a literal number, but may also be symbolic for the entire church of that time. Verse 2 tells us more about them. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. 
Though this passage may leave us with some unanswered questions, the focus of it seems to be worship as the 144,000 sing a new song to the Lord, something that they've never sung before. According to verse 3, it's only the 144,000 Jewish believers who had been redeemed from the earth who were able to sing this song. The fact that they had been redeemed points to the fact that they've been purchased by the blood of Christ the Lamb who died to pay their debt of sin. John also says that these believers did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. This small section of text is one of the most difficult sayings in the whole of God's revelation, and so it's very important that we look at it more closely. A literal interpretation might lead to the conclusion that the 144,000 are Jewish male virgins, but are we to interpret this literally? I honestly don't believe it's a statement about gender or marriage or sexual purity at all. Rather, I think the reference to virginity and the lack of defilement is a symbol of the fact that they have not been corrupted by the sinful wiles of the beast's kingdom. That kingdom will later be described as Babylon, the mother of prostitutes, which actually reinforces the metaphor of sexual impurity to describe its nature. And so likely then, the purity of these individuals symbolizes the fact that they've not defiled themselves with the Antichrist's world system. The scripture goes on in verse 4 to confirm that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And that's really important because it shows that these 144,000 are Jewish Christ followers. In other words, they very clearly have accepted their Messiah. We're told three things about these redeemed Jewish believers in verse 4 and 5. Firstly, that they are offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. And that really seems to indicate that they represent an even larger Jewish harvest that was to come. And in fact, many believe that these 144,000 are perhaps the Jewish evangelists of the tribulation. Then verse 5 reveals that no lie or falsehood was found in their mouths. Like their Lord Jesus Christ, they speak the truth. These 144,000 are his. They belong to him and they follow him. Well, three angels are about to appear to John, each of whom will make a significant declaration. Look at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. 
This angel proclaims the gospel to every person on earth in every location and calls upon all to worship God, the creator of everything. It is the eternal gospel, the same good news that's been offered to all men and women throughout the ages that was set in place before the foundation of the world. And it's God's final invitation to everyone. No one has the excuse of not having having heard. This is really the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Matthew 24 verse 14 when he said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. In verse 8, the second proclamation is made. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Here we see the introduction of a new city or entity known as Babylon the great, which is associated with the realm of Satan and his Antichrist. We'll learn a lot more about the city in Revelation 17, but here here we pick up that the Antichrist system is a seductive one and leads the world in disloyalty to God. There is uncertainty as to whether this title, Babylon the Great, is to be taken literally or if it's merely symbolic. Interestingly, in Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 through 9, the city of Babel, which later became known as Babylon, is linked to rebellion against God. The fact that the beast city and his world system is described as a faithless woman who promotes spiritual adultery underscores that the purity of the 144,000 refers to their refusal to engage in the worship of the Antichrist and his false religious system. And the faithless woman herself stands as another one of Satan's counterfeits, this time as a grotesque imitation of the church, the true and spotless bride of Christ, soon to be with her bridegroom. Looking back, we can see that God has done so much to woo mankind, even in these final days. He sent his two witnesses. He withheld the full outpouring of his wrath, because you'll remember the judgments in the seals and the trumpets were partial and limited in time and scope. Not only that, but he strengthened his followers to preach the gospel, though many were martyred for their faithfulness. But now in verse 9, it brings a clear warning to those who refuse to love God. A third angel followed them and said, in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Those who worship the beast and receive his mark will suffer the wrath of God, depicted here as a cup to be drunk. 
Those who reject Jesus Christ, who willfully choose to follow the world and its practices, they will be tormented in the presence of God's angels and the Lamb forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. And their punishment will never end. And perhaps the thing that will torment them the most will be the fact that their punishment will be executed in the very presence of the angels and of the Lamb. In other words, they will be able to see what might have been theirs if they'd only chosen a different life. By contrast, though, look at what we're told about the saints in verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, the people of God, who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Those who choose to remain faithful to Christ will have a very different experience. In verse 13, a voice from heaven sounds and proclaims the second blessing of the seven blessings of Revelation. The first blessing back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 was for those who read the book and take its message to heart. This blessing in Revelation 14 is for those who die in the Lord, those who have placed themselves in his care and who've remained faithful to him until their last days. They've not left their first love or followed the ways of the unbelieving heretics. They may have faltered at moments, but they have completed their race no matter the cost and are still following the Lord even as he leads them into eternity. There they will be given rest from their labor and will be rewarded for their work that was born out of faith. What a contrast to those who have rejected him. The final vision of this chapter is one of judgment, using pictures that would have been very familiar to John's mind. Verse 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. We already know that the title son of man is a title Christ frequent u- frequently used of himself that comes from Daniel's visions of the Messiah. However, some are not certain that this is a reference to Christ here. For one thing, the crown this harvester wears is a Stephanos, a victor's crown of gold, and not the diadema or royal crown that Christ is said to wear in other parts of John's vision. But we're also going to see another reason for their doubt in verses that follow. Look at verse 15. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. 
It's not likely that any angel would command Christ to do anything, making it further unlikely that the first harvester sitting on the cloud is the Lord himself. However, this does remind us of Christ's words in Matthew 13, where he described a coming time of harvest in which the weeds sown by the enemy would be separated from the good crop that God had planted. A second angel appeared who was also ready to harvest, but this one was commanded to gather the clusters of ripe grapes from the earth's vine. Interestingly, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus said that he is the true vine and that those who remain in him are the branches. But we must notice that these grapes here come from the earth's vine, which is nothing more than another of Satan's counterfeits. This is the wicked vine of Babylon that intoxicates and poisons the people of the earth with the wine that it produces. This vine will be cut down and the so-called fruit associated with it will be thrown into the winepress of God's wrath to be crushed. Look at verse 19. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. God's wrath is seen here as being like a a wine press used to crush the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine. And John relates the flow of the grapes juice to the blood that will flow to the depth of horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, which is approximately 180 miles. It is no coincidence that 180 miles is the approximate length of Israel from north to south. That land will be drenched in blood as God moves to confront and deal with his enemies. As chapter 15 begins, we see the introduction to the last seven judgments of God, the bowls of wrath that make up the third and final woe. We've ended the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets and things are going to move forward once again. John says in 15 verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. Earlier we were told in Revelation 11 that as the seventh trumpet sounded, God's wrath had come. And here we see John sees the seven angels carrying the last judgments, called plagues, and that in these God's wrath is completed. Up to this point, the judgments of the seals and the trumpets have been partial, but not so with these. And I suppose that the only real encouragement is that in these, God's wrath is brought to an end. Before John speaks of the seven angels with the seven bowls of wrath, he gives us another glimpse of heaven, though, and focuses on those who victoriously came through martyrdom for Christ. 
He says in verse 2, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and of the Lamb. John sees what he can only describe as a sea of radiant glass beside which stand the tribulation martyrs. These are those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They had become victors over the beast by refusing to worship him and they had been killed for their faith. Had they denied Christ and worshipped the beast, they would not have been here. They would have been among the defeated facing God's judgment. Though to the world, these holy ones of God probably looked like losers, they are the victorious ones. They are the champions. And God has now equipped them to sing two songs, according to verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and of the Lamb. The song of Moses found in Exodus 15 is the first song ever recorded in Scripture. It is the song that Israel sang when they safely stood on the other side of the Red Sea, having been delivered from Pharaoh's army. It was a song that celebrated God's total victory over evil. Here in Revelation, standing by a sea of their own, now safe in the promised land of heaven, the victorious martyrs who have also been delivered not only sing the song of Moses, they also sing the song of the Lamb, which is the last recorded song of Scripture. Made up almost entirely of quotes from the Old Testament, it too speaks of the deliverance and victory God gives his people. They praised God, singing, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed, for your judgments have been manifested." As the tribulation saints praise God for who he is and for his righteousness revealed in his justice, there's no mention of their own triumph. From start to finish, the song they sing is about the greatness of God. And I think it's not a coincidence that John sees these victorious believers when he does, because they are all safe in heaven before the bowls of wrath are poured out. Look at verse 5. After this, I looked, and in heaven the temple that is the tabernacle of the testimony was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean shining linen and wore gold sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, Filled with the wrath of God who lives for ever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed.
After John had seen the jubilant tribulation saints delivered from the grasp of the dragon, he saw the temple in heaven opened and seven angels receive seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God. These bowls of wrath are to bring incredible natural disasters to the world. And being seven in number, they contain the complete wrath of God. Nothing is being held back. The seven angels are radiant in their purity and seem almost priest-like in the way that their clothing is described. They're given the seven bowls of God's wrath, and the Greek word here for the bowl is an interesting one. The word fiale was the word for the broad, shallow bowl or deep saucer that the priests used when pouring out blood offerings in the temple of the Old Testament. And the most notable thing about these fiale was that because they were shallow, they were very quickly poured out. And that speaks to the speed with which these judgments will fall at the very end of the tribulation period. The symbol of God's glory being like smoke comes from the Old Testament. In one of the prophet Isaiah's visions, he too saw the temple of God filled with smoke as a sign of God's presence. The idea that no one could approach when the glory cloud of God was present is also seen in the scriptures of old. Perhaps what John relates here is to help us understand that no man can seek to stop what God is about to do, for the time for intercession and mercy has ceased. In conclusion, I want you to think back to what we learned in Revelation 8 and 9, when the final three trumpets were referred to as being three woes. The first woe, heralded by the fifth trumpet, was when the locusts poured forth on the earth. The second woe came at the blast of the sixth trumpet, during which the vast army began to move, killing as they went. It seems that the bowls of God's wrath are contained within the final seventh trumpet judgment, which was also known as the third woe that the eagle spoke of in Revelation 8.13. Whatever the exact timing of all of this, as we're told in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 to 8, one thing is certain. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble his people, and he will give relief to those who are troubled. All of this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, because then he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. God is going to repay those who have persecuted his people. He will punish those who do not know him and who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. Scripture makes it very clear that God has always been inviting people into relationship with himself from Genesis to this final proclamation by the angel. If anyone doesn't know him, it is because they haven't desired to. Sadly, light has come into the world and men have loved their darkness more.
The gospel or good news of our Lord Jesus is really the good news that salvation is by faith alone, not based in good works, but rather on the completed work of Christ upon the cross. The word obey there in the text means to listen to and submit to. So those who obey the gospel are those who accept what it tells us about God and about ourselves. Those who do not obey the gospel then are those who refuse to believe what God has done and who choose not to accept Christ's work on their behalf and follow him. The only way that we can be reconciled to God the Father is through the shed blood of his Son. And to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross is to reject God himself. To reject him carries with it the certain expectation of judgment. And as we will see in our next lesson, it is a truly dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we see that you are a God of mercy and also a God of justice. It is not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, those who choose not to allow you to be Lord of their lives will get their way in the end, for they will be separated from you for all eternity. Father, help us to share the truth and the love of Jesus with others. Help us to shed this gospel across the earth in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.